Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses a range of issues of significance around the world. Today's episode is a conversation between Peter Hoffman, assistant professor in the New School's Graduate Programs in International Affairs, and Tom Weiss, Director Emeritus of the Ralph Bunch Institute, on his recent book, Would the World Be Better Off Without the UN? I now turn the discussion over to Professors Hoffman and Weiss. Thank you for joining us. Great. Thank you. Hello, I'm Peter Hoffman. Greetings. I'm Tom Weiss in Chicago. Today, we're in conversation about the United Nations to consider its role and significance in an ever-changing world, but with a spotlight on contemporary challenges. Typically and tragically, the blights of war, inequality, and injustice remain commonplace and offer plenty of grist for the mill of such discussions. However, most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought infectious diseases to the forefront of concern. In many ways, the spread and impacts of this virus are a microcosm of all the political, economic, and social dynamics at play in international politics. And as the United Nations is the most important international organization, an analysis of its place and performance in this present period is a window into understanding power, values, and change at the global level. I'm delighted to speak with Tom today about what this all means. In addition to his numerous writings on the UN, including co-authoring with David Forsyth, Roger Cote, and Kelly Kate Peace, what is perhaps the most widely read textbook on the topic, The UN and Changing World Politics, his newly sole-authored book, Would the World Be Better Off Without the UN?, provides a comprehensive assessment of the trade-offs inherent in the international organization. For our conversation today, we'll start with some broad brushstrokes of interpretation of the UN and then turn our attention to the current moment. Tom, when I teach or speak at public events, I'm routinely asked about the costs and benefits of the UN. At the outset, let me say I often feel I need to preface any such remarks with an admission of admiration mixed with frustration with the organization. I liken it to a scenario expressed by children of alcoholics. You want to be proud of the afflicted parent, but then they show up drunk at your birthday party and embarrass you in front of your friends. I want to feel good about the UN, but it is sometimes humiliating to communicate the balance between plausibly championing the UN's virtues and also justifiably critiquing its shortcomings can be a real struggle. Long before an era of fake news and alternative facts that has suffocated actual reason dialogue, I found myself frequently resorting to simplistic soundbites that not only regrettably normalize an attention deficit disordered approach, but also fail to capture the nuance. Accordingly, I've opted to try to underscore the complexity of the UN and biases of observers, myself included. To that end, let me start with a transparently inflammatory two-parted question. What's the biggest myth about the UN, and what's the most neglected fact about the UN? Since I've set up this premise, I'll go first. The biggest myth is that the UN is some sort of world government, but the reality is far from it. Governments alone have sovereignty, in effect, the license to rule. The UN is an organization of member states, each of which is sovereign as guaranteed by the Article 2 of the Charter. 
Generally, the work of the UN is an outcome of the extent of what can be agreed upon by 193 member states, except for some special circumstances when the Security Council weighs in, and that's governed primarily by the P5. The most neglected fact about the UN is its budget per capita. In 2018, the most recent year for which there's complete data, the UN's total revenue was just over $56 billion. That's for everything. Peace operations, development work, food aid, education programs, refugee assistance, all of it. There are about 7.8 billion people in the world today. That means world order under the UN system costs on average about $7.18 per person. What a bargain. I've seen people at Starbucks spend more than that for a cup of coffee. Tom, what do you think? What are the biggest myths and the most neglected facts about the UN? Well, thanks, Peter, for the uh, kind words of introduction. Uh, but thanks also for uh, providing a lot of the information I don't have to give. But let me just start off by backpedaling for a moment and, and say that um, uh, my entire life has coincided with that of the United Nations. I figured out the other day mathematically that I was conceived during the San Francisco conference um, <laughs> and uh, was born uh, early in 1946 when the first meetings of the Security Council and the General Assembly uh, took place in London. Um, and so it's hard to imagine a world without it. However, in light of uh, the current administration in Washington and in light of what is not going on in relationship to the COVID uh, virus, uh, I, I can actually imagine a world without it. Not a world that would be better. That's why I wrote the book. The, you know, the organization is either 75 years old, young, or 75 years old, old. Uh, and what I tried to do in the book is answer your two questions in one way or another. As you say, the, the first myth, I think, is that somehow this is a, a supranational organization, that it has muscles, that uh, it, it can actually be a leviathan in waiting, and it's anything except that, as you know. So for me, one of the biggest myths is that you can actually keep 193 member states happy all of the time, uh, and that's what too many officials try to do. And you say, you pointed to the the dearth of resources. Uh, the, one of the biggest parts of the budget happens to be, of the UN budget, happens to be the uh, peace and security budget, the uh, uh, so-called peace operations or peacekeeping budget. Uh, and if we fast backwards to the first months of the Iraq war, uh, something like a week's operations constituted the entire UN's budget for 15 to 20 operations worldwide. Uh, so one week of U.S. operations in Iraq. That kind of puts in context the kind of monumental tasks that have been set out from international peace and security, stopping pandemics. What about terrorism? Oh, by the way, some climate change with resources that just pale in comparison with any of the thing that's on the institution's plate. Um, well, that whole talk about 
trying to parse what these myths and the facts are that really help us understand the UN gets me thinking about issues of metrics. You know, that's always been a, a, t- a difficult uh, equation in the social sciences, particularly, you know, we prefer more qualitative things generally. Uh, you and I both come from the cult of political science in some way. Uh, we find that that discipline often has an array of stock answers that often requires deeper investigation to sort of debunk conventional wisdom when the evidence allows us to do that. That being said, the paradigms, the big approaches of political science tend to point to large structural influences on the organization to explain its behaviors, its outcomes. Many of these worldviews are rather dismissive of the UN and international organizations, complaining that the UN is fundamentally submissive to great powers or a crutch for capitalism. Some go so far as to say the UN is entirely meaningless. Um, Others, some take a more benign or optimistic perspective in suggesting that interdependence incentivizes cooperation at the UN to achieve global public goods. There are also approaches that look at organizational processes, such as producing ideas, allocating resources, and galvanizing action. Each can make certain sense at certain times. Um, Even a stop clock is right twice a day. But perspectives are useful in depicting the reality of the UN. To get to the heart of sort of the analytical question and also sort of the evaluative question about the UN, let me ask you. how do we measure success and failure by the UN? What sort of metrics have explanatory power? Uh, well, you know, the uh, second secretary general had his metric, and it still actually is not so bad. That is, this organization was not designed to get us to heaven, but to keep us from going to hell. Um, and I would argue, as I try and do so in the book, uh, that one of the reasons we're not in the netherworld already happens to be a huge number of activities by the system. Um, you mentioned, I, I, at least I think about the two big outputs from the organization, one of those being various kinds of concrete operations, which actually don't make much sense to many listeners of this podcast. Um, These range from statistical operations to training programs for women entrepreneurs in Botswana. They also include a huge number of um, humanitarian operations. Uh, So concrete efforts. So those we can look at in terms of the benefits to individuals, how many people would have died with or without the assistance. Um, how many uh, children uh, have been inoculated from uh, diseases that used to kill them, etc. And I think you could actually come up with a fairly decent cost-benefit analysis, uh, I mean, for operations. Um, so just to go back again, because I think the history, which many listeners are probably totally unfamiliar with, but if we're thinking about the covid Uh, 19 uh, crisis, Uh, there used to be this thing called smallpox, which uh, killed maybe 2 million people a year when the world's population was about uh, a third of what it is now. 
Uh, and between 1967 and 1977, uh, that plague, an earlier plague, was eliminated. The total cost happened to be about $300 million, of which the UN portion, that is the portion administered by the World Health Organization, was about $100 million. At the time, that was the cost of one U.S. fighter bomber. The U.S. total of that fire bomber was about 30%. So it seems to me that whether you were trying to say, is it a good idea to get rid of all the suffering? Is it a good idea to eliminate the administrative costs of uh, that disease? Um, doing any kind of cost-benefit analysis would suggest that this was a hell of a good investment. The, so there, the operational part, I think we could come up with some um, – metrics, uh, some of which wouldn't be very favorable to the organization if you think that peace operations are supposed to keep a country from returning to violence. Uh, most metrics in most crises we've seen over the last 25 years would probably be uh, not all that positive. But a lot of other operations, whether it's refugees, children, development efforts, etc., I think would give you a pretty positive balance sheet. But the second big type of um, activity, output, uh, is one that's a little harder to put a number to. And you mentioned that, big ideas, principles, norms, standards that are generated in the institution, sometimes born in the institution, sometimes just massaged in conferences by the organization. But at the end of the day, change the kind of conversation one has about a particular issue. We can point to issues related to the human environment, starting way back in 1972 in Stockholm, and what's happened uh, to a world consensus about what to do about climate change in most places except Washington, D.C., of course. Or we can talk about what kinds of values should be used in terms of having a conversation about mass atrocities and the whole responsibility to protect has changed that conversation. So in trying to evaluate the value of ideas, norms, principles, and standards to meet global challenges um, is quite different. And I would say there too, if you're trying to say how many conversations over the years have changed, whether it's women's rights or the human environment or human rights in general or mass atrocities, uh, the balance sheet here is, is also positive. That doesn't mean that there are no negative entries. Uh, I can come up with a whole slew of them, and I do in the book. But on balance, it's positive. And this is not a topic that most um, – social scientists or actually most citizens actually think about very seriously. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think um, I th also I, I think that, you know, you put your finger on this sort of elusive quality to measure about ideas. Um, the human development concept itself is such a huge bit of progress over the traditional notion of what development means. It's hard to really sort of fathom that. 
at the same time, I think we, we have to sort of situate it within the context that you have also identified. And, uh, you know, two other sort of touchstones on this regard are the partnership for development that is part of the 2015 Sustainable Development Goals and before that the Millennium Development Goals has a standard of a meager contribution of 0.7% of a state's GDP. And we know there's only a handful of states that routinely make that. In a similar vein, I guess we also think about peace operations, how that has been sort of a transformative idea of reinterpreting collective security in this newfound way. But again, the money situation is rather uh, paltry. Uh, You know, the current budget is about $6.8 billion for peace operations. Well, global military expenditures are on the order of about $1.8 trillion a year. So I mean, that's 264 times what the UN spends on peace, they spend on means of war. Um, given this sort of context element to it, you know, how do we, can we really uh, evaluate the UN uh, without sort of speaking to the larger uh, political set of relations that it is embedded in? No, uh, obviously not. Uh, and I think one of the other underappreciated uh, facts, although it's obvious, you pointed to Charter Article 2, the most cited uh, and nefarious of articles in the (laughs) Charter, (laughs) namely that state sovereignty uh, is supreme, although that too avoids the the, uh, obvious fact that those same states have agreed to some 600 uh, treaties that are on deposit at the UN, signed and many ratified, uh, that same notion of sacrosanct state sovereignty ignores uh, the fact that if you want to prevent financial flows, you want to prevent ideas, uh, good and bad, uh, states are pretty... uh, uh, unsovereign in protecting their borders. They can't really do much about it. So uh, this notion that keeps getting in the way um, also breaks down when you think about the famous Security Council, the mighty Security Council, which you referred to in your opening remarks. That same Security Council is either hopeless in looking at Syria and the humanitarian disaster that Syria, Mm -hmm. whereas the same hopeless Security Council, the permanent members and the elected members, when they decided that chemical weapons were a step too far, the same hopeless group got together and pointed to the only likely candidate, uh, the UN and the uh, Office for the Prohibition of uh, Chemical Weapons to do something about it. So once states decide that the institution can be helpful and provide some resources and a modest amount of political support, the organization can act either operationally or in terms of moving ahead with uh, uh, standards and uh, other international uh, legal uh, uh, mechanisms. So So all this sort of uh, 
frustration or, or uh, posing about the UN sometimes is seems to be rather unsubstantial in reality. And, you know, I find that, and, you know, that's an important sort of takeaway of even looking historically at the UN. When we look more at the present moment, this seems to continue to play out. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about present day uh, authoritarian governments and their relationships with the UN, we have to remember the UN has long suffered autocrats during the Cold War. Many figures who repressed their population some violently gave speeches at the UN or were otherwise engaged with its organs and officials, readily participating in the post-Cold War period and even after 9-11. There's a whole cast of nefarious types, you know, Gaddafi of Libya, al-Bashir of Sudan, Assad of Syria, Mugabe of Zimbabwe, Lukashenko of Belarus, etc. And Many times they conduct diplomacy through the UN. Indeed, many of them use claims of sovereignty under the UN Charter to shield themselves from criticism. In the introduction to your book, Imagining the World Without the UN, you are quite explicit that its writing was fueled by the election of Trump and his America first ideology and his general disavowal of multilateralism. Of course, he's not the only national populist leader that decries multilateralism, globalism, and the very rudiments of the UN system. There's also Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Erdogan in Turkey, Duterte in the Philippines, Orban in Hungary, to name just a few of the higher profile ones. So why why are the current generation of authoritarian leaders so hostile to the UN? How do they pose a threat to actively damage the UN system, given the provisions in the charter to protect their sovereignty. Well, we're going back to uh, my initial <laughs> remarks here uh, related to uh, 193 uh, member states, keeping them happy all of the time. And uh, certainly the existence of a provision that says, no matter what you do, you're sovereign, even though that's broken down in certain ways, the UN stage during the General Assembly in particular every September, but actually the rest of the year as well, uh, provides a uh, location for uh, ex-TV uh, reality show stars to make their presence felt uh, so that Trump feels quite at home on that stage. Um, and in your list of um, stars in the past, uh, uh, you also could have put in, uh, you know, Castro as he uh, came off his revolution and arrived in uh, Harlem for the first time, where you talked about um, Khrushchev banging his shoe and trying to get attention uh, in the General Assembly, or um, actually Arafat checking his uh, revolver at the door of the General Assembly. So the the current generation uh, is able to use that podium uh, to great effect. Um, and that's one of the roles that is played alas, by the stage that consists of the general assembly every fall. There are ways to get around, uh, state sovereignty. And then one of the things that, uh, I've tried to do, and in fact, you and I tried to do in the book we did on humanitarian action is to say to what extent are institutions able 
to exert independent agency. And there are ways to get around uh, sovereign heads of state, uh, not very much in public, but certainly around the fringes in uh, operations and other kinds of negotiations. But this current generation, I don't know that we've ever had so many at one time. Uh, you know, you, you ticked off a whole list of them. But certainly if the UN is not to be a relic, uh, the politics of uh, America first, or you insert whatever country you want, China first, Russia first, uh, Turkey first, uh, Brazil first, that really must give way to a commitment to a more viable and visible United Nations, uh, which, as we know, the charter says, was founded to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. It was also founded to save succeeding generations from the scourge of pandemics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yet here we are uh, in a situation in which the machinery is creaking, in which uh, we are moving back toward trying to put up national borders when we know very well if there's one thing that doesn't respect national borders very well uh, in addition to uh, climate change it's it's a pandemic and here we are so as i said for the first time in my life i've actually thought is are we going to be facing the future with even weaker international institutions than the ones we have today hmm. Um, huh, yeah, that's a, a scary thought in some ways. Uh, the question of how these authoritarians are really sort of shaking up the place, uh, it does seem sort of standard fare, but uh, it does seem, I don't know if it's gotten more extreme, uh, you know, maybe we're, we're making a mistake trying to look at this through political science. Maybe we should have studied theater or something because uh, the theater that's going on is rather dramatic here. They all think they're going to shake up the UN, but in some ways the UN seems to shake them up. Uh, they want to disparage and weaken the UN, but none of, none of them ever want to actually destroy it because they need the UN. They need that enemy to blame. They want a scapegoat whom they can shift responsibility when their own governments fail. Oh, yeah. Case in Absolutely. Point, yeah. The case in point is the current situation with COVID-19. Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, yes. You know, aside from the political challenges to the UN rooted in the rise of authoritarianism, another danger of world order stems from the coronavirus and the COVID-19 respiratory illness that surfaced starting late last year. The World Health Organization would seem perfectly positioned to address this crisis. Its mandate is, quote, working for better health for everyone everywhere, unquote. And its official role is to coordinate global responses on behalf of all 194 members. Uh, The World Health Organization has had some remarkable victories. You mentioned eradicating smallpox. Um, That's a perfect illustration of that. They've also been involved with the 2002-2003 SARS epidemic. Um, when uh, I believe the leadership under Groh Brundtland was pivotal in sort of gathering information and pushing for travel warnings, tracking infections, uh, isolating cases, etc. When it comes to COVID-19, uh, the Chinese government first reported cases 
uh, at the very end of 2019, uh, in January, infection had grown at a huge rate and the WHO declared a public health emergency of international concern. It was only the fourth time it had done so. The others being the H1N1 influenza in 2009, the polio virus in 2014, and Ebola from 2014 to 2016. However, it wasn't until February 8th of this year that the Chinese government let the World Health Organization monitors into the country. On March 13th, the WHO deemed COVID-19 a pandemic. Some, such as Trump, have contended that the World Health Organization has covered up China's culpability for the disease. He has also hinted that he might suspend funding for the organization. Is criticism of the World Health Organization warranted? Why or why not? Do you think? Well, it's it's hard to find some positive things to say about the forty fifth president. Um, <laughs> and Kofi Annan, the late former Secretary General, used to say that uh, the abbreviation for his job was SG for scapegoat. <laughs> and uh, it seems to me that um, the WHO provides a very good SG for uh, Trump. Uh, Earlier, I think it was CNN, the Democrats, uh, and uh, other people who were really responsible uh, for making the virus into the hoax that it was. And now there's a better target, which seems to be the WHO. In, I mean, many of us would make criticisms of the WHO, not the ones that Trump seems to be making. He's looking for a target that can take a little heat off of himself. And the obvious uh, threat is to pull back uh, U.S. funding, which he's done uh, for a huge number of other agencies, including the Fund for Population Activities, UNRWA for the Palestinian Refugees, and the list goes on. It's true that WHO in this crisis, as in the Ebola crisis a few years back, was harmed by two two variables that are really hard to get around. The first is that instead of appointing a physician come politician, (laughs) um, you know, Mrs. Brundtland for one, Uh, many organizations end up appointing a politician come politician, uh, and that happens to be the case at present with the WHO. Uh, An African uh, who has no medical training, uh, it was Africa's turn and why they chose that African when there are hundreds, thousands of competent African physicians. So there's the problem with many international organizations that uh, politics dominates competence. However, if you're watching uh, the terrible CNN or MSNBC or even Vox News, you'll notice that the one part of the UN that is really fairly omnipresent in the crisis happens to be physicians who happen to be statisticians, physicians who happen to be uh, public health specialists, who are 
not only talking about the issue, tracking the issue, uh, doing what a universal intergovernmental organization can do. However, that universal intergovernmental organization has been hamstrung increasingly over the years by the politics of money, resources, who pays for what. In the face of such a crisis, you'd like to think that there was an organization that had a little reserve, that had a way of moving uh, either staff or resources to meet a crisis, perhaps not in December of last year, uh, but certainly in January or February or currently. But the WHO's budget, like the budget of most institutions in the UN system, has moved away from having a core budget in which the institution had resources to dispose of to attack problems as it saw fit, smallpox in mid-60s, um, to a budget in which the resources are virtually totally, um, well, totally uh, uh, spelled out by the donors. So instead of WHO having a budget that was two-thirds core, in which the organization could decide to move left, right, COVID or not, the organization in the last 40 to 50 years has gone to about 20% of its budget being core. So the tied resources um, make for tying the hands of an organization that in this instance should have been much freer to react to the crisis. So um, none of Trump's criticisms are related to the WHO's shortcomings as an intergovernmental organization, like many other intergovernmental organizations, but they're all related to his uh, desire to um, create an alternative reality, the alternative fact that it was uh, WHO covering up uh, China's, uh, well, statistics or uh, covering up China's responsibility for starting the crisis. Um, there's, you know, as all of this, there's an element of truth in the fact that perhaps WHO should have been much more forthcoming much earlier, but they actually were publicizing this long before the United States or Europeans or anybody else was taking the virus seriously. Um, while it was still a hoax here, they were, you know, ringing the fire alarm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they. Uh, I mean, uh, the there's some well-founded aspects, uh, concerns here. I think about the obsequiousness of the WHO relative to China. You know, when China was cracking down on the whistleblowers, um, that was certainly problematic. But overall, yeah, I mean, the Trump criticism seems completely overblown, and that sort of question of context that we've mentioned before certainly creeps in here. Uh, you know, the World Health Organization's budget is somewhere on the order of about $4.8 billion. So given global population, that's like 60 cents a person, you know, as sort of a frame of reference. In, and that's uh, the budget for two years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really just a drop in the bucket. Um, you know, as a 
frame of comparison, just uh, since it's in the news, I, I see it all the time. My beloved New York City has a $1.6 billion budget for public health. That's for just the eight and a half million people who live in New York City. So, I mean, it's a factor many times more. It shows you how so much of this has been uh, driven by states to focus on protecting themselves. It's much more about you know, preventing them from getting the disease than funding uh, the prevention of outbreaks, um, which is part of the tragedy here. Um, the question on donors as well as also, you know, the World Health Organization is no more an agent of China than it is of other rich and Western countries that are also donors to the WHO. Um, nevertheless, there seems to be a lot of political uh implications of what's going to happen regarding COVID-19. And some of this um, will pertain to the UN itself. Uh, when we talk about the scope of numbers uh, for what COVID-19 might be, there are some estimates that maybe 500 million people around the world may die of it. Um, even more optimistic rates that look at uh, higher how certain numbers regarding infection rates and fatality rates have been exaggerated. Even the more modest guesses uh, put it at uh, a pretty alarming number of about 15 million people. Now, that seems like a lot. I mean, it is a lot, um, particularly when we compare it with other sources of uh, death in the world. Um, you know, so much attention is paid to violence, conflict, terrorism, homicide. Those kill about 550,000 people each year. Disease, though, is always a much larger source of fatalities. Cardiovascular diseases is by far the largest, killing about 20 million a year. Cancer, about 10 million a year. Um, if COVID-19 reaches anywhere near those estimates, it will turn that into perhaps the largest uh, killer. Um, all of this turmoil may have political effects. On April 9th of this year, the UN-led Interagency Task Force on Financing for Development stated, quote, the economic and financial shocks associated with COVID-19, such as disruptions to industrial production, falling commodity prices, financial market volatility, and rising insecurity, are derailing the already tepid economic growth and compounding heightened risks from other factors. These include the retreat from multilateralism, a discontent and distrust of globalization, heightened risk of debt distress, and more frequent and severe climate shocks. So, Tom, what, what do you see happening here? What are or what will be COVID-19's political impacts on the UN? Do you think we will see uh, this reshaping prospects for the UN changing in some level? Well, earlier you were speaking about your alcoholic relative, maybe your alcoholic uh, uh, former professor here should start drinking and try to cheer you up because um, it is really a glum moment. Uh, and the uh, estimates done by that, that task force, and I've seen others uh, from UNCTAD, I've seen other UN estimates that are talking about the the trillions of dollars that are going to be wiped away as a result of unemployment and um, downturns in economies worldwide. So I, I think that the, the COVID virus or the COVID-19, the coronavirus itself, will be 
relatively short-lived. I mean, eventually we're going to have a vaccine. There'll be uh, certain kinds of immunity. Uh, we'll figure out how to get around this. There'll be substantial deaths, but it'll be over. The economic spillover is going to last a huge amount of time, and the um, nature of climate change, which is now gone from being an urgent existential crisis to which we've got to do something about very soon, uh, we're no longer even talking about it. So um, I think one of the, uh, not even longer term, but sort of medium term effects is going to be to change the order of um, priorities with which countries and the UN system looks at these crises. Um, the, you know, I said earlier that and you did as well that, you know, America first is not unusual in the sense that um, there are other China first, Russia first, Brazil first. And what I think many Americans don't realize is that the predecessor, the namesake of this playbook that the president is using, America first, was the name given to the shortest lived, perhaps best finance anti-war movement ever, uh, which began in 1941 by U.S. isolationists, actually proto-fascist, uh, Charles Lindbergh and uh, uh, Henry Ford and Father Coughlin, uh, who sought to avoid looking at the crisis that was World War II. Well, that America First experiment uh, didn't last very long. Uh, it lasted precisely 11 months. Uh, I'm, in my most, more optimistic moments, I'm hoping that the COVID virus could be something like a lower-level uh, um, outbreak of Pearl Harbor, which changed the way states looked at what to do internationally. Um, the best outcome here could be, I think, an immediate reinforcement of the shaky uh, foundations of the current UN system. And in the longer run, perhaps an even modestly more fit United Nations system. But we could also spin out the scenario that uh, Brexit was the beginning of the end of the European Union, that uh, the U.S. Draw withdrawing from UNESCO way back when is now just the foreshadowing of a uh, skeleton UN that would be even less uh, robust than the one that we have depicted as being lamentably uh, inadequate for COVID or anything else at, at the current time. So it's somewhere between those two. As I say, um, I keep hoping that it's the former and that we might learn something. The only way we've ever tried any experiment with international cooperation is following big worldwide conflagrations, whether that was uh in 1815, uh, 1918, or 1945, um, not sure that the COVID 
virus is going to be the equivalent, but it certainly is a very large canary or very numerous canaries in a very big coal mine. It, it tells us that we better wake up. Mm. Well, loss is a powerful driver. Um, as you mentioned, those uh, certain moments in history where we were allowed to rethink world order, um, COVID-19 certainly uh, presents some dangers uh, beyond the more uh, direct, uh, explicit ones, such as, you know, economic challenges that will destroy budgets, et cetera. You know, at a very basic operational level, I think sometimes the UN uh, becomes the fall guy. Uh, you know, the, one of the examples uh, I was reading about earlier uh, this week was in South Sudan, how a, a peacekeeper has been diagnosed with COVID-19. And what that means is not only, you know, do they need to stay where they are, but uh, it means you can't rotate out that uh, battalion of troops to be replaced by somebody else because you don't want to risk, uh, you know, transmitting the disease further. Um, that hurts the reputation of the UN. I mean, it looks like they're, they're not doing enough. And I think, you know, sort of the reputational costs that will come out of this could be really problematic. Um, nevertheless, uh, and this may be the more hopeful side, and you'll have to correct me if I've drunk too much of the Kool-Aid of hope on this, but uh, this idea that we are at a moment where uh, everything is being um, challenged about the UN. Uh, later on this month, uh, April 25th, will be the 75th anniversary of the opening of the San Francisco Conference that ultimately birthed the UN Charter. And these occasions tend to stir interest in not just celebrating the organization, but reimagining it. Um, with that in mind, uh, you know, what, what can, what is down the table that is possible and what is not possible? Are we talking re reform? Are we talking revolution? Um, try and do some political alchemy, mixing the realism and idealism to tell me what you think we could actually see. Are there low, is there low hanging fruit for changes or is this going to be more, let's throw some money at it and stage some theater and then business as usual? Whew. Well, um, I, if I could answer that question, my consultant fees would absolutely increase. Um, I think you're onto something and I've been thinking through this with uh, a couple of colleagues recently that, rather than um, celebrating or lamenting or whatever we're going to do uh, between uh, April 25th and October 24th for the 75th anniversary of the, the uh, convening of San Francisco and the entry into effect of the UN Charter, um, perhaps the better thing to do is look at the UN at 100. Hmm. Uh, and assuming... Uh, there will be such an institution that we would, you know, have to uh, reinvent it if it didn't exist. Uh, it seems to me that, um, and I don't know whether we're going to call this uh, revolution. It certainly is, would be a substantial transformation of uh, business as usual. Uh, the organization would uh, focus more of its operations on what only it can do, 
uh, so to overcome the bureaucratic inertia that exists in every single institution, that there would be a more centralized presence um, in both the uh, peace operations, the development, the humanitarian spheres for, for operations to not be everything to every country, but to focus on what only the UN can do in operations. And similarly, on the ideational front, on the normative front, um, do what only a universal organization can do, the convening power in trying to reach consensus about global solutions uh, uh, to, to, to global problems. Um, and I think there's going to be, have to be a period of consolidation, not just because of the obvious fact you mentioned about how, how kind of laughable the size of the budget is in relationship to the task given. Um, so there needs to be some pairing back to what's more and eliminating what's less important. Uh, and I, I know bureaucrat students of bureaucratic politics would say that's impossible. Um, but I keep thinking that um, the next secretary general, it's clear that this current one is not going to do it, but the, the next secretary general would basically have a platform of uh, making real the rhetoric about fitter for purpose of focusing on areas where the organization has comparative strengths. Um, it would be hard to argue that there's a replacement for the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be hard to argue that you don't need an improved uh, Paris Agreement on climate. I mean, th there are areas that the institution simply must focus on uh, and I would see that as the, the goal for the UN at 100. Um, and so uh, before we uh, break out and uh, store the champagne flutes for 1975, I think we really need to look down the road. Uh, and there are going to be some immediate dangers. I, I We sort of looked at this a little bit earlier in, in terms of uh, – globalization and its discontents, it seems to me that, you know, supply chains are, as a result of this, um, there's going to be more emphasis on national, what are you going to call it, not, not autonomy, but national wherewithal to meet certain kinds of basic industrial and um, agricultural needs. Uh, there are limits because of the globalization, but this crisis and where we are suggest that there could be some pairing back on that. Certainly the, the kinds of um, movement, free movement back and forth, um, I know I'm not going to say it's the thing of the past, but it's been a long time since I've gone three months without getting on an airplane, and I'll probably go another three or six months before I get on one again. I think various kinds of interconnections and interdependence that we took for granted um, are going to actually be called into question. And what comes out will be some sort of hybrid, I would suggest, between the, the kind of Wild West globalization we've seen and what will be sellable, feasible for populations uh, in a whole variety of uh, 
countries are own included. Well, let me just ask one final question on all of this. And, um, you know, uh, the idea that change is possible is certainly a, a hopeful one. And I, I share that hope with you. But I always try and figure out where where it's going to come from. I mean, some of it maybe, you know, there's a crisis that obviously triggers political momentum. But I think one of the main drivers of the UN is also one of its biggest obstacles, and that is states, obviously, sovereignty, et cetera. And so I find myself turning back towards thinking about civil society. Only civil society seems to ring the alarm about complacency. Only civil society remains capable of bringing attention uh, to the vulnerabilities and responsibilities that are out there. Whether the trigger is pandemics or climate change, civil society is probably the key to changing the UN. Until then, the UN will be hampered probably by a crisis of legitimacy, perhaps even irrelevance. For too long, changing the UN has meant tinkering at the edges because politics has not really permitted anything beyond that. COVID-19 is perhaps a sign that more shuffling of the deck chairs on the Titanic is inadequate to confront <laughs> the existential danger at hand. The traditional channels and actors of politics have failed to change the UN. So for real change to come, it is those channels and actors that must be remade. Only then will the UN be remade. What do you think? Is civil society going to lead the way, or is this uh, still something where there will be some wisdom from states coming out of this, do you think? Well, uh, one topic out of the many topics that we have not discussed mm -hmm. uh, is um, one that you've just introduced, namely uh, the role of non-states uh, in intergovernmental organizations and the um, notion that uh, it came out of a research project at the Bunch Institute, namely the intellectual history of the United Nations, spawned an idea uh, that uh, took form in 2009 in an article uh, that was done by one of your members of your cohort, Tatiana Karyanis and Sir Richard Jolly, and I was the third author on the article called The Third UN which in fact explained huge amounts of normative change in the United Nations by the members of civil society, but the third UN in general, non-state actors, including corporations and the media, uh, various kinds of commissions. And this was certainly a, a shock for the system to change the way it, it thought, to change the way it framed policies, to change the way it operated uh, in the field, uh, to change what seemed possible and no longer impossible. And so I think you're right that this is the catalyst. And in fact, um, Tatiana and I are just finished a draft of a book called Helping the UN Think, hmm. uh, which is uh, what we're, t we're aiming at here. That is, how, how do you change the way you frame issues? How do you change the incentives and the disincentives? Are there ways we can get around 
state sovereignty. There certainly are. However, no matter how much we emphasize alternative voices, alternative sources of wisdom, advocates of one sort or another, uh, it's still the responsibility and still the only authority happens to be states. So we got to get governments, not just, you know, human rights watch to take human rights seriously. Uh, we've got to get uh, those same governments to um, take mass murder seriously, not just what uh, the commission on intervention of state sovereignty says. So at the end of the day, we can exert pressure, but until those 193 members, or at least the most important members, decide that uh, it's important to pull together rather than separately, uh, we are going to have one COVID after another. Yeah. Um, well, that seems to be sort of a good note to end on. We've uh, <laughs> uh, it may not be the most uplifting one, but I think that definitely uh, tells us something about the current moment. So uh, thanks, Tom. It was great chatting with you uh, about the UN. And I also want to thank the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies for being our home in some ways and for organizing this conversation. A terrific conversation, Peter. Thanks so much. That's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Professors Tom Weiss and Peter Hoffman for their insights into the place of the United Nations in the world today. I also want to thank Risto Voinov for his help on the technological side of the podcast. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies saying see you next time on International Horizons.